got four things I need us to do today. I don't normally lay them out for you in advance, so consider that a treat. Um, here they are. This is what we're going to do today. Firstly, we've got to look at this passage. We're in verses uh, 17 to 20. Do not think I came to abolish the law. We're in this section, and we're going to, firstly, we've got to put it in, the, in its place, in the flow and the context of Matthew. I've been really, really, really big as we've gone through Matthew, particularly as we've hit the Sermon on the Mount, to really emphasize, you see how this has happened, and then this, and this follows this, and this, so that we get all the pieces put in the right place. So we're going to take a moment to go through and just see how this passage fits into the flow of Matthew and into the flow of the Sermon on the Mount because this is a crucial uh, bridge or hinge text that links us from what's gone to what's going to happen. And it's very important that we understand it and how it fits in the flow. Then once we've done that, we're going to then exegete the passage, have a look at it, go through the details, see what it's saying. But we're going to do so in the context of the disciples of Jesus at that time. Now, I know you regulars know this, but it's important to keep saying it. It's so easy for us, and and the Christian culture in this nation has led us this way for years and years and years. It's so easy for us to open up the Bible, go to any passage that takes our fancy, and just read it and go, boom, there you go, apply. Like we're opening up the wrapper on a band-aid and we're just going, boom, done. Without actually thinking, where is this? What's this doing? So we're going to have to understand, what did this passage mean to the readers of the day, to the hearers of the day? Once we understand that, we're going to have to look at some theological implications of this passage. Now we know what it's saying. Theologically, that makes some really important ramifications for how we read our Bibles, how we view Scripture as a whole. So we're going to look at a few of those. And then finally, at the end, we'll wrap it all up by saying, okay, now we understand it all. What about me? I don't live in the first century. How does this impact me now today? So that's what we're going to be doing. That's our journey, our roadmap, as it were, so you can see. So let's begin by looking at then where it is in the flow of Matthew. That was the first point. Where is this in the flow of Matthew? So, at the risk of being ridiculously repetitive, because many of you are here every single week, you're going to catch up online on the weeks you miss, so you've heard this a lot, but we need to keep reiterating it. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the message of John the Baptist, and then, in exact duplicate, the message of Jesus. That John the forerunner, he heralds and says the message that Jesus then repeats, and this is the message to the world of that day, if you want to go into the kingdom of heaven, you have to repent. Because the Pharisees taught that all of Israel had a share of the kingdom to come. Very much like those who have some sort of, you know, uh, historical connection to the church. Your, your, your mum went, your grandmother went, you know, you, you, you know, you grew up with a Bible on your lap, sitting, hearing Bible stories. It doesn't automatically make you a Christian. That there is always repentance that is indicative of true saving faith. And so, that statement from Jesus and John the Baptist immediately puts them in conflict with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, A, are saying everybody gets to go into the kingdom just because they're a Jew. But B, when we recognize that the requirement to enter the kingdom is repentance, the Pharisees don't even qualify. And John the Baptist made that very clear to them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of come, brood of vipers? Woe to you. If you think that was harsh, you wait and see what Jesus says at the end of this book. So so they're now immediately in conflict with the Pharisees. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we start off with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are these eight statements that are essentially saying, 
You will flourish, you are blessed if this is you because this is what repentance looks like and you will then have a place in the kingdom of heaven and these are the blessings of the kingdom that will be yours. That's essentially what the Beatitudes were doing. And we went through those and week after week as we were going through them, we were it was essentially repeating, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what we're doing is we're getting a picture and we are starting to see What does it look like when a person is truly saved? Not just someone who goes to church, not just someone who knows how to speak Christianese, but what does a repentant person truly look like? And last Sunday, we came to the conclusion of this as we came out of the Beatitudes and we had the salt and light verses and what we saw there was that when we are truly repentant people, we are going to stick out. And the way that we live our lives and the things that we say and how we represent Christ has an impact on the world around us. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're a light on the hill. A city on the hill, rather. A light, giving light to a room. We don't cover ourselves up. We're there. We don't say, oh, I don't want to get into that conflict. We just say, this is the truth. And let the cards lie where they may. We speak boldly and we live boldly. And in the midst of that, we find ourselves, as the Beatitude said, to at the same time be peacemakers and also be those who are persecuted because we're annoying people. Like the Pharisees. So when we live lives and we speak truth, then we are people that make a difference to the world. And the other thing that came through last time was as we look back at Leviticus in the context of salt, we understood that there was contained in these words just this emphasis. Look, you are going to have to keep the covenant. If you've truly repented then you're going to be keeping the Mosaic Covenant, which was under effect at that time. You're going to be keeping the Mosaic Covenant really, really well. Because you're seeking to please God, and that's the rule of law, to please God. And so their lives would stick out. Now the Pharisees, of course, they said, well, we are the experts in the law. We're the ones who can tell you how to live the law. And what is going to happen... Now we're moving forwards into future weeks. Is that Jesus is about to have an entire section from verses 21 to 48 where he essentially says, you've heard Mosaic law taught this way. I've got news for you. The Pharisees told you that you must not commit adultery. But if you really want to be obedient to Mosaic law, you can't have adulterous kind of thoughts. That we don't simply want to be people who are seen to live correctly, putting on our Sunday best, speaking in the best possible Christianese, looking the part, seeming to be a Christian. But rather, because we are repentant, our hearts have been transformed from the inside out. And now, now it's all different in that we're not just saying, well, I got to look right. I've got to keep the rules but rather we're seeking to please God and it looks completely different. And so Jesus goes through, and I'm really looking forward to teaching that whole section, he goes through parts of the law and he illustrates how they should have been keeping the law if they were truly repentant and why the Pharisaic understanding of the law was erroneous, why they weren't therefore able to keep it as they should. And that is... is, um, is bridged by our passage today. And we will have a look at um, this in detail. But what I want us to understand is that we're coming from a place where this is what repentant people look like and this is how they impact the world around them to here's how you have to keep the law properly. And those two sections are perfectly linked by these four verses before us today. Now, It was important that we had that flow. And you'll see why as we start to unpack it. Because you've got to get this in its context. Because I tell you what, passages that are taken out of context and misapplied, this is right up there with them. Okay, 
Verse 17, let's get stuck in. This is section two now. We're trying to understand what did this mean to the listeners, i.e. disciples of Jesus, in that day. He says in verse 17, having said in verse 16, let your light shine. He says in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophet. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In the context of what Jesus is saying, we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that one of the accusations against Jesus by the Pharisees was that he just didn't keep the law. He, was, he wasn't a law keeper. They were the law keepers. Oh, the Pharisees, they kept the law so meticulously. This Jesus guy, man, he just doesn't care about the rules. Now, if any of you have any background in legalistic churches, you will know all about this. These are the people who say to you, well, I see you have a Bible, but it doesn't look to me like it's a King James Version. So, do you really have a Bible at all? I can see that you're a lawbreaker. Oh, you have an occasional glass of wine with your food, do you? I can see you don't care much for the things of God. You debauched individual. And legalism loves its rules. It loves its additional rules. And the Pharisees were in this absolutely bizarre way. They were this blend of universalism. All Israel have a share of the kingdom to come. And extreme legalism. For the one law to keep the Sabbath day holy, by the time of Christ... It is estimated that the rabbis and Pharisees had between them put together approximately 2,000 separate laws. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Oh, thank you for asking. You can go this far, but not that far. You can travel a kilometre, but not more than a kilometre. Uh, with regards to work, you cannot work. Well, what does that mean? Does that qualify as work? Well, okay, I've got 17 rules for what qualifies as work. They had everything ironed out to meticulous detail. And there are those in churches today who love to play the same game. Every single one of us is under the authority of Scripture. But you are not under the authority of additional legalistic rules, even if they come from your pastor. You get to interpret the text. Now, we don't want to do that in isolation. We don't want to be someone that says, well, I can read the Bible. I don't need any help. And then you come to all sorts of ridiculous conclusions. The church community, the those who are gifted to teach within the church, those who uh, have gone before us in church history, other pastors and teachers around the world, all of the church universal acts as, as sort of help for us, buffers as it were, to prevent us from straying off into the various heresies that Christians have gone off to in various centuries. But at the same time, I don't get to make the minutiae of rules for you as I might even want to on occasion. There are some churches where the pastor will frown at you if you don't dress in the appropriate manner, where you have to get permission before you can marry a certain person. Otherwise, you know, you, 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 you know, oh, you can't, I don't think I approve of that marriage. You can't get married to that person. And they like to manage the minutiae of your lives. We bow before Christ and His Word. We obey Him. But the additional rules are an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me say that again. Additional rules, non-biblical additional rules, legalism as I define it. I know others use the word in different ways. But that is an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. We're used to seeing other things as being an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Somebody says, well... I had a dream last night and God told me, and then off they go, 
And we're like, okay, okay. We don't need that because the word of God is sufficient. It's an assault on the sufficiency of scripture. But equally, additional rules are an assault on the sufficiency of scripture. If the Bible doesn't tell us whether we can marry this person or that person, if the Bible doesn't tell us to take this job or to take that job, if the Bible doesn't clearly delineate what is a, you know, that, that, you know, you should wear this type of clothing on a Sunday or that type of clothing, if the Bible doesn't specifically delineate what day you are meeting at church or, or other things, for us to place those rules on top of scripture because we've got some really good ideas, trust me on this, is an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Sometimes, friends, as we mature in our faith, we get to the point where we want answers that the Bible doesn't give. And a mature believer says, okay, I'm not going to know. I'm going to have to just be led by my own individual conscience under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and somebody else might do that and come to a different conclusion And we're all good. And that, my friends, is an absolute hallmark of what I desire that we as a church become. I loathe legalism. And I'm prone to it as much as any one of you. We're all prone to it. But we need to be resting in and satisfied and resting in the sufficiency of God's revealed word. So the Pharisees, they thought they were the experts of the law. And because they had these additional rules, and they had so many rules, Jesus, who is 100% committed to the law of Moses here. He says that absolutely clearly. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish He is refuting the false accusation of the Pharisees that that's exactly what he was doing. Why would they say such a thing? Because when they said, you need to fast on these additional days, Jesus said no. When they said, you need to do these additional ceremonial washings, Jesus said no. He did not tolerate their additional rules and regulations. And by the way, in a little while, when we come to the passage that says, um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I know that people apply that in all sorts of different ways, but predominantly in context, Jesus is saying, hey guys, we've got to keep the law and we've got to keep it well. But you can forget all that other stuff. Can you imagine living, seeking to please God, And the Pharisees giving you rules for when you wake up, when you sleep, what you wear, how you dress, what you do. Every minutiae of your life. And then Jesus just going, hey, you just got to keep what Moses wrote. That's it. The lifting of that burden. Oh, my word. So the Pharisees are saying, you're a lawbreaker. Because they could not distinguish between what we call in sort of like, more in the more academic circles, we, we, we distinguish between the written law and the oral law. And the written law is what's written in the word, and the oral law was the stuff that the rabbis made up, but they came up with stuff. Of, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and I kind of see what he's saying, but I add this, and they, they theoretically thought, a bit like Catholics and Peter, thought they could trace it all the way back to Moses. In other words, they've given their additional rules, their oral law, the rabbinical law, the same weight as the written law. If you find Christians who give equal weight to their additional rules as they do to scripture, run a mile. That's so damaging. So damaging. So Jesus is confronting the mis- representation of him by making it absolutely clear by repeating the word abolished twice that he has not come to take away the law he has come to fulfill it so let's first deal with the word abolish the word abolish does not mean as some teach that the law of Moses is somehow eternal okay 
If I said to you, for the next 10 days, we are going to only eat in and out. That's it. No going to Carl's Jr. No home-cooked food. No fruits and veggies. Just in and out. You see, I'm, I know my audience. I'm preaching to Californians, all right? Just in and out for 10 days, right? If you get to day seven, and you've had in and out for breakfast, in and out for dinner, and in and out for supper, possibly a snack in between from in and out, you may be feeling very, very sick. And your favorite burger on day one may not be your favorite on day seven. And then if you just say, you know what, it sounded like a really good plan seven days ago, but I can't do this. And then on day eight, you say, somebody just give me some fresh fruit and veggies. I quit. Then you have abolished your plan. You didn't get to 10 days. The, the plan was existed. The plan was declared. And then you said, uh-uh, I quit. You have abolished your plan to eat in and out for 10 days. But if you say, I am going to be a soldier and I will push through this gut ache and I will ignore the scale in the morning and I will press on to the 10th and final day and you eat that last fry from your final meal at in and out on day 10, then on day 11, you say, I will never eat an in and out ever again. And you may never do that. I did this as a kid, by the way. I bought, when I was like about eight years old, I went to a market in England and I bought a one pound bag of white chocolate buttons. And I loved them. And I put them on my de- uh, on this desk at home where we had the, a computer and I was playing computer games and, and, and I would eat some of them and I ate some more and I ate some more and I ate some more. It got pretty, pretty bad. And by the time I got to, uh, you know, halfway through the bag, I was, whew, I think, and I, you know, I like my chocolate, don't get me wrong, but there was a quarter of a bag of that chocolate that sat on that desk for about six months. I was just sick of that stuff. Didn't touch white chocolate for years. Is getting to day 10 of your in and out and never reaching it again, is that abolishing the plan to have 10 in and outs or eating outs for 10 days? It's not. It's completing the plan. It is, to use the words of Christ, fulfilling the plan. When Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, he is not saying that the law is eternal and the law of Moses will never come to an end. Now we know as Christians that it has come to an end. The law ended with the death of Christ, Romans 10.4. The book of Hebrews spends two chapters going through why we're no longer under the old covenant, we're now under the new covenant, and how the priesthood has changed and how the law has changed with the shift between covenants. The book of Galatians talks about how the law was a guardian until we reached maturity. But now that the Messiah has come, we have matured and the law has served its purpose. And just as a child doesn't go to school once they graduate, then we don't go back to school again. The law has served its purpose. The New Testament is clear on this. But what it means is, is that Jesus doesn't ever give up on the plan. The law will accomplish what it is supposed to accomplish. He hasn't come to end the law by abolishing it, but he has come to end the law by fulfilling it. And that is going to become clear as we go through the gospel. But his statement in verse 17 is ridiculously clear. The Pharisees are misrepresenting me. I am not ending the law. He then takes this central, this central point of verse 17 And he emphasizes it in a few different ways that are going to make this point not only clear, but ridiculously clear and and really challenging. He says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, 
By the way, when you see truly I say to you, why, why, why not just say I'm saying to you? Why say truly I say to you? Whenever you see the truly there, truly, truly I say to you, that kind of stuff, you know he's about to say something that people might struggle to believe. You know? The other day, I saw a mountain lion walking down the street in Burbank. No! That's a load of rubbish, you say. So if I know that you're going to say that, and I really did, and there was an incident a few years back when a mountain lion kind of got a bit delirious and just wandered into the, you know, walking down a street. But you know it sounds ridiculous. I know you're going to think this is crazy. I, I know, I'm not, I just want you to know in advance, I'm not joking. April the 1st was yesterday, not today. Okay, this is true. This really happened. So when you see this truly, we are expecting there to be something that you might not expect. So truly I say to you, so there's an emphasis here. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now this is a fascinating structure here. There's two untils. There's two untils. Okay? I am, I'm going to eat in and out every single day until the day I die or until I can't stomach it anymore. There's two untils. One has to happen or the other. And when one of those things comes to pass, then it comes to an end. There's two untils. The two untils are structured in such a way that we call a, a kind of chiastic structure in that they go one either side of the main point, which then gets a sort of degree of emphasis by being in the middle. So let's do the middle bit first. What he's saying truly to them, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. Not only does he say, I'm not here to abolish the law, he says, you don't get to adjust it. You don't get to play with it. You don't get to mess around with it. And he says that, and and older versions uh, traditionally have rendered it jot or tittle. Which basically, all you need to know about that is it means either the smallest possible letter or just a little mark in the middle of a letter. You know how some people do their letter I's like a straight line with a dot on top? And other people, they learn cursive and their eye goes with a little tail at the end, right? That little tail is your tittle. That's what Jesus is saying. Because in Hebrew, there's a couple of letters that look similar. And the distinction between them is just a little mark. Just a little line. And Jesus is essentially saying, you don't get to change even the smallest part of a letter. Not one little bit of this is going to be changed. But, this no changing, adjusting of the law... This has two untils. Firstly, on the one hand, until heaven and earth pass away. That's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> In other words, you, 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 you don't get, there's not a point where you can suddenly start playing with the law, changing letters, adding bits, taking away bits. But, rather, what God has said stands. God has said it, there it is. You are man, he is God, you don't get to change it. But there is another until, which is until all is accomplished. So there will never be a day, heaven and earth pass away, where you get to change the law. But there is a time coming when the law will be accomplished. What it came to do will be done, its purpose will be fulfilled And the law will come to an end. So everything here is in complete harmony. Now then verse 19, and we'll come back to some of this in part 3, but verse 19 says this, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not, uh, whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And let's just be clear about this. Do we reject legalism? Absolutely, 100%, amen. We reject additional rules to scripture. 
Does that mean that we have a laissez-faire, relaxed approach to Scripture? I sometimes see Christians today saying things like, well, you know, we don't want to be legalistic and keep the letter of the law. We're really about keeping the spirit of the law. That one expression has been used to do more harm to God's word by the church than almost any other. Yes, you do have to keep the letter of the law. Every jot and tittle of it. You don't get to play around with the Bible. God said it. That's it. We don't get to adjust God's words. Well, you know, he said to do this, but you know, we live in a different era today. And we see things kind of differently. So if we, if we completely ignore what he actually said and do what we want, well in a sense we're keeping it because that's the spirit of the law. Blasphemy. Heresy. Nonsense. Codswallop. You run as far as you can from that kind of teaching. We have to keep the letter of the law. And Jesus says, even the smallest, the least, the most inconsequential, the one that we think just doesn't matter, you have to keep it. And more so, the people who take more care over the obedience to the law, they're the ones that are going to have the privileges in the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that are going to have greater rewards. They're the ones that will have it better. There is an eternal reward for keeping rules that most other disciples are too lazy to keep. Don't think are important enough. Can't see the point of. Don't understand God's purposes in giving them. Those ones that seem dumb to you, they're the ones that have eternal reward for keeping them. I mean, Jesus is clear here, is he not? Is this not clear? I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm telling you that you have to keep every tiny, tiny letter, every small commandment, and that everything has to be done. I'm not abolishing, annulling, getting rid of anything. And then what he says at the end is just ridiculous. And I think this is where the truly I say to you really comes into play. For I say, there's the four. I think this links to the, you're going to find it hard to believe this. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? We've got to be stricter than the legalists? Absolutely. The difference between a disciple and a legalist is not that we're less strict. It's that we have a different set of rules. They're God-made and not man-made. That's really important. And the second that someone is talking about legalism and keeping rules, and they're speaking in terms of, well, some people are too strict, you know they don't even understand the concept of legalism. It has got nothing to do with strictness. And what we're going to see with regards to the Pharisees in the following sections is that in fact they were very unstrict with regards to Mosaic law. And they covered up their compromise with additional rules. I don't know if that's always the case, but I have met a lot of legalists in my day. And I have not found an exception yet. Legalists love additional rules, but they are not good at keeping strictly the ones that they are supposed to be keeping. Don't be a legalist. And in fact... His statement does get to the extent of ridiculousness because having previously said that, you know, you're going to be greater if you keep these rules, you'll be less if you don't keep these rules, in the kingdom that is, because of course we're all in the kingdom to whom we're speaking to because we're repentant disciples and we've established what that means in the Beatitudes. So we're in the kingdom and if you really keep the law strictly, it's going to be better for you in the kingdom than those who don't. And then having said that, he actually seems to almost contradict himself by saying, you don't even get to go into the kingdom unless you keep the law more strictly. You have to surpass the keeping of the law by the Pharisees. Now that's hard. That's a hard statement. 
I think it can be understood in a couple of ways. I think way number one is this. The Pharisees didn't keep the law because they weren't repentant and therefore they didn't get a place in. If you're truly saved, you've got to be better at doing what God says than those who are unsaved. Let me say that again. If there are religious people who aren't really saved, you're going to have to do a better job of living according to scripture to show your distinction from religious people. Your righteousness is going to have to surpass theirs. When you see it in that context, I think it's a bit more understandable. The second way of understanding it, and I think this is the more traditional way for Christians, is simply to say, well, none of us get to, none of us get to go into the kingdom unless we're perfect. And of course, none of us are perfect, so we're reliant on the blood of Christ. And of course, that's completely 100% true, and we'll come to that at the end. But for now, I'm not sure that's the context of the passage. He's just simply saying, these Pharisees aren't what they're cracked up to be. (laughs) If you're someone who's repentant, if you're one of those people who is a peacemaker, if you show mercy to other people, if you live in the way that we've described in the Beatitudes, if you have works that are are showing evidence of your repentant heart, then you'll be better than the Pharisees. Don't worry about that. I think that's all he's saying in this context. And how do, why do I think that's what he's saying? Because look at the context that follows. We'll just nip ahead a few weeks here. But verse 20 has said, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes of Pharisees. And then look at chapter 5, verse 47. He says, if you only greet your, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You've got to do more than others. You've got to be, have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of those who are unrepentant. You have to. Guys, as Christians, we're always going to have this tension. Are we saved by works or by faith? By faith, 100%, not a single work. We're only saved by faith. Faith is what saves us. We are saved by faith alone. And we exercise that faith by by throwing ourselves before Christ, repentant of our sins, and say, I have failed, I am incapable, I am nothing, and I am yours. And I trust you and you alone for my salvation. And when we are truly repentant, there will be works. There will always be works. There will be transformation. There will be differences. We will begin to more and more look like the Beatitudes. That tension with faith and works, we've always got to feel it. Saved by faith, but a saved, a saving faith expresses itself in works. And we will be better than religious people who aren't truly saved. And he is going to illustrate that will be here in three weeks time and uh, a few weeks following when he's going to go through from verse 21 to 48 a whole series of things whereby he shows you where the Pharisees have compromised and where a truly repentant person would not compromise or would at least be trying not to compromise but we'll get to that when we get to that So I think that we see where this passage, what this passage is saying to the Jewish people of that day. You're disciples of Jesus. You've repented of your sins. What does your life look like? It looks a lot like the Beatitudes. You're salt and light to the community around you. There is going to be consequences because you're under Mosaic law, salt. There's going to be consequences of not obeying. You need to be trying to live right. And we are not in what we're doing in rejecting the Pharisees' understanding, in rejecting their additional rules and regulations. We are saying nothing of the sort regarding Mosaic law. The law of Moses is to be kept. It is to be kept perfectly. Even the least of the commandments, we're not changing a letter or anything. That is clear. So you walk away from that sermon on the mount and you go out to live your life in first century Israel and you know what you have to do. You've got to keep the law of Moses. 
And that is how you show that you are a repentant person. There's a few theological implications now that I want to briefly look at. We'll do this quickly. Many, many people in the church today argue that the law, what we are calling here the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, doesn't really stop. I mean, it's kind of eternal. And and, and the big argument that they make is ironically, it's ironically from this very passage. Not until heaven and earth pass away, they say. See? This law just goes on and on and on. And what they try and do is, and it's called covenant theology, they say these covenants are covenants that go through all of time. That this is a one big covenant that's just, you know, Moses saw it this way, Abraham did it this way, but it's the same kind of God's covenant with his people covenant. It's just one big covenant. As I like to say, it's a made-up covenant that's not in the Bible that ignores all the other covenants that are in the Bible. And so they have this one governing covenant. And this governing covenant has a governing law, but because they believe the covenant changes, they can have the law change it. So you will have Christians today, and you'll say to them, well, why is it that we have to observe observe Sabbath? And they'll say, well, you observe Sabbath because it's in the Ten Commandments, dummy. It's part of the law. You've got to do it. You've got to keep it. And, and I have had all sorts of accusations thrown at me over the years. I am antinomian against the law. Ugh, he's just this wild libertarian because he doesn't believe that we should keep the Sabbath. Jesus says, not until heaven and earth pass away. Okay, well, hold, hold on a second there. Does he not also say not one jot or tittle will be changed? And what day exactly are you keeping Sabbath on? Has it shifted at all? Still Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, is it? Sunday, you say. I figure that's a few jots and tittles you've changed there. And and, and if someone doesn't keep the Sabbath, presumably just going to work in that period of time, that that's a stoning to death, right? Hope you don't travel too far to get to church today. Whew. We'll be stoning you before the end of the day for that, that excessive work that you're doing. Or have you changed jots and tittles? And Jesus, who said, not one, not jot, jot nor tittle, is also the one who, when he said that things regarding food, the disciples discerned that subsequently he was essentially making all meat clean. That's changing a few jots and tittles as well. So what can we ascertain theologically from this? Very simple. You don't get to play with God's word, God's laws, God's covenants. You don't get to rename things. You don't get to adjust things. You don't get to reinterpret things. God speaks and it stands. Who does get to change the rules? Because the one thing we all agree on is that rules have changed, right? Sabbath was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. You couldn't eat pork or bacon. Anyone enjoyed a bacon sandwich in the last few years? You know, you understand the changing of rules, right? Are any of us uh, going to a temple to offer sacrifices? You know, we all agree that things have changed. So the question becomes, on what basis? And the simple answer is this. Only God gets to change the rules. And with regards to Mosaic law, Jesus says, hey, I haven't come to just do away with this stuff. I haven't come. The Pharisees are lying about me. I'm going to keep it even stricter than they're going to keep it. And again, the next, you know, um, 18 verses, he's going to prove that. But what he is saying is, what I have come to do, though, is to fulfill it. I will bring the purpose of this law to its completion. Because the Old Testament law was part of the Old Testament covenant that was connected to the Old Testament sacrificial system that had an Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And it all went together. And then Jesus died on the cross. And the temple curtain was torn in two. 
And the sacrifice is ended because the one perfect sacrifice had been offered that replaced the entirety of that. And so with that sacrifice, the system came to an end, the priesthood came to an end, and now we have one high priest who is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah because he's a high priest by the order of Melchizedek and not by the order of of Levite. And what does that mean? That means that the whole system has changed and the rules have changed. And that can only happen because you can't change one little bit of it. That can only happen when it's been fulfilled. And when he died, tetelestai, it is finished. It was fulfilled. So when Exodus 20 says, thou shalt not murder... It has no bearing on you at all. Now before you kill me, understand that when Cain killed Abel, there was no law saying thou shalt not murder, and that was still sin. And there are commands in the New Testament that say not to murder, because it's still wrong. Always has been wrong, always will be wrong. So of course, there are things in Mosaic law that are still true. But this is crucial. They're not true because they're part of the Mosaic commandment. That law, in its entirety, came to an end with the death of Christ. This here, at this time, it was still in effect. But it's no longer in effect. We are now under the new covenant. And the new covenant has a different law. And it's called the law of Christ. Twice in scripture, that terminology is used. All the laws aren't gathered in one place like Leviticus, but rather they're scattered around the letters and stuff because the nature of the law is different because the law has been written on our hearts and we are empowered to live that law by the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that it isn't declared what it is that we should be doing, but it's a bit more scattered because the nature of the law is different. So then, coming to my final point quickly as we wrap up. How do we as Christians, how does this text that says you don't get to change it one jot nor tittle, that the law isn't going to be abolished, that it's going to be fulfilled, that you have to keep the law perfectly, how does that apply to us when we live after the death of Christ, when it has been fulfilled. Does this become irrelevant to us? No, 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 no. All scripture, even Leviticus, by the way, is profitable for teaching. It may not be an effect, but it's still scripture and it's still profitable. So what do we learn from this text today? Here's a few things for you to take away as we go. Firstly, Obvious lessons. God gets to make the rules. We don't get to change them. Only he does. I loathe it when Christians trying to argue against the sin of homosexuality quote from the book of Leviticus. Because any half-clever LGBTQ advocate will say, But doesn't Leviticus also say you can't have shellfish? And the answer is, yes it does, gotcha, you're right. The law has ended, but the New Testament teaches it's a sin, so keep to the New Testament when you make your point. Why is the laws of Leviticus ended? Because God ended them. We see that stated in scripture. We see the the center of history at the cross and resurrection, which is the turning point, which is why it had to change. And we can explain why it's changed and we can show it clearly from scripture. So God changed it. But when we come to Romans 1, where God speaks of the sin of homosexuality as a judgment that God has handed people over to, Has that come to an end? Is there, is there any way in which we can say, well, that was Romans 1, but you know, we're not in the time of the Romans anymore. No! You don't get to play fast and loose with God's word. You don't get to change a jot nor a tittle. You don't get to change a letter or a part of a letter. God speaks and we 
have to accept it and bow before it. It stands. So the principle that Jesus is applying to his listeners who are under Mosaic law is a principle that is equally true to us as we stand under the authority of Scripture. And that leads to the second point, and my final point today, God willing. That our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. As people who are saved by faith... We have no right to say, well, you know, I know I shouldn't do that, but you know, blood of Jesus covers all sins. If there is any expression that gives away a nominal Christian, someone who is not truly saved, but has been raised in the church, knows the language, knows how to camouflage themselves in church and play the Pardon me, play the part. If there's one phrase that gives away fake converts, it's that one. Oh, well, you know, I know I shouldn't, but the blood of Jesus. You don't understand the blood of Jesus. I can do this because the blood of Jesus. You do not understand the blood of Jesus. And everybody who's been with us the last few weeks on Wednesday mornings, if the ladies, Wednesday evening, the men, you will know all about this. Because Jesus didn't simply die to remove the penalty of sin. Jesus died to remove the power of sin. How shall we who've died to sin live in it any longer? If we are truly saved then we are going to be people that stick out. We are going to be strict. Stricter than the strictest legalist. We will not compromise the word of God. We will not take shortcuts. We will not disobey when it's convenient or it doesn't seem important to us. There will be nobody stricter than us. Why? Because we're legalists? No, we reject any additional rules and regulations. Why? Because we're earning our way to heaven? No! We're saved by faith alone. We will be stricter than everybody else because our Savior died for sinners like us. And we, in seeing his kindness at the cross, have poured our lives out before him and said, I will trust in you and you alone. I am now dead. The old man is gone. That I might find new life in you by the power of your Holy Spirit. What must I do to please you, Master? What a privilege to live my life for the one who gave me life. That's why we're strict. It is the opposite of legalism. Because we reject additional restrictions as much as we reject variations, omissions. Because our service of Christ is what we are compelled to do. Because we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because we mourn over our sin. And we want to be faithful servants of the Lord. So much to glean, even from a passage talking about a law that's no longer in effect. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we as we go away this week, Lord, may this truth resonate within our lives and our hearts. Lord, just convict us where we've compromised, where we've taken shortcuts, where we've made excuses. Convict us where we've added rules to give the impression of righteousness when really we are compromisers. And may we bow before the purity of your word, obeying what it says, out of a heart that hates our sin, and desires righteousness that comes from you and you alone. Amen. Amen.
Man, I'm convicted this morning. I don't know if you are, but I am. Okay. It was a sermon for me, if not for you. Let's come now to the Lord's table. It is indeed true that our righteousness must be exceeding the scribes and Pharisees. And at the end of chapter um, chapter 5, uh, right at the end, he says that we must be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And of course, we're not. <laughs> we're not perfect. But there is one who was perfect. And in being perfect, he fulfilled the law. And he made a way for sinners like us to be accepted by a holy God. And so we come to this table today on this most important day. It is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as, as Uni read the passage for us this morning, is the day when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, leading up to the final week before his crucifixion. They took the trees from the branches, Sorry, the branches from the trees, even. And waved the palm branches and they declared him to be Messiah. <laughs> that's that's alright, right? That's good. That's repentance, right? How come that didn't change anything? Matthew tells us. We'll get there. That's chapter 12. But he comes in to the acknowledgement from many that he is the Messiah. And he comes to die as the Messiah in the place of others who would have faith upon in him. What I want you to know today as we come to the table is that in the Jewish calendar, Palm Sunday fell on the 10th of Nisan. Jewish calendar is not the same as our calendar. 10th of Nisan was the day of Palm Sunday. It was the day where the lambs were presented ready for Passover sacrifice the following week. And from day 10 until day 14 of Nisan, the priest examined the lamb to make sure it was without blemish. When you come up in a moment to take from the the bread, take from the cup, just for those who maybe haven't been here before, the left hand, my left, your right hand tray, that is literal wine. Here is this grape juice, like all good Baptists will have. And here is gluten-free bread that's better than the wafer that you get there. So everybody's catered for. So in a moment, you're going to come up, you're going to take whichever cup you wish and take the bread and go back to your seats and we'll take it together in a minute. But as you're coming up, I'm going to be reading to you from the chapters after chapter 21. You only read 21, we read Palm Sunday. And in the passages that I'm going to read to you bits from, Jesus is being challenged by Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, chief priests, Herodians. They're examining the lamb to see if he is without blemish. Spoiler alert, he is. So we can come to the table, not on the basis of our own perfection, but on the basis of his. Let's pray, and then we'll come up and take as we wish. Father, I pray, Lord, that we, if in our hearts right now have been convicted of unconfessed sin in our lives today, Lord, that we put that right in our hearts now before we come. Not that we need to be perfect to come, because, Lord... You are perfect, and that's why we're able to come. But Lord, because we desire to serve you, and we desire to eat purely, and we desire not to take your sacrifice in vain, and we desire to be people of the covenant, the new covenant, people whose repentant hearts are transformed, who shine like light, and whose righteousness surpasses even the legalist. So, Lord, forgive us our sins. And, Lord, thank you that we, in our imperfections, can come to this table because of the perfection of your Son. Amen. Just come up and take whatever you wish. And as you come, I'll be reading. As I said, the examining of the Lamb... 
Chapter 21, the triumphal entry as he comes in. He then cleanses the temple. And then he condemns Israel through the parable of the barren fig tree. And because of the cleansing of the temple and because of the fig tree, he is challenged. Verse 23, chapter 21. He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him when he was teaching and saying, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They test him on his authority and he answers them sufficiently. He tells them more parables illustrating their unrepentant hearts and illustrating those who would be ready and those who are worthy. And then we have in chapter 22 the famous taxes to Caesar passage. The Pharisees went and took counsel together about how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Those who were committed to the Roman rule went with the Pharisees. They hated each other, but they were common and united in their one enemy, Jesus. And they tried to trap him on the issue of taxes. And Jesus again answers in a way that in verse 22 leaves them marveling him. Verse 23 of chapter 22, the same day, Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, come to Jesus and ask him a question. Question about resurrection, and Jesus answers. The Pharisees, in verse 34, he heard, they heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And so they gather themselves together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, they brought out their expert, their Goliath on the hill, so to speak, their intellectual giant, and they challenged Jesus on Mosaic law. Will he compromise? Will he heck? And so, when they have challenged Jesus, And he has been found to be without blemish. The scribes and the Pharisees are denounced. In chapter 23. The Lamb comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The day that we celebrate today. And he was then subsequently tested by every group of leadership and authority And even they could not find any fault or flaw. He was tested by the priesthood. He was tested by the leaders. And the lamb, the true Passover lamb, was found to be without blemish. The bread that we have is unleavened, without sin, because it represents the lamb who was without blemish. Let's take the bread together. The scribes know. The leaders know. They have the law and the prophets. They've tested him. They've found him to be exactly who he claimed to be. They are now more than ever before without excuse. And so the greatest condemnation of religious leaders that you see anywhere in scripture, even going beyond the condemnations of Jeremiah and Ezekiel before, are found in Matthew 23. And then Jesus, in the chapters that follow, he goes to eat one last time with his disciples. And when he comes to the cup of rejoicing in the Passover meal, He says to them, 
Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Woe to the Pharisees and forgiveness to those who have truly repented. If we have repented, if we've turned from our own self-gratification, our own self-glorification, and we've given our lives and our hearts to Christ, trusted in him, we drink this cup with the assurance that it represents complete and total forgiveness for all of our sins in thought, in word and deed, both past and present and future, without any, any exception. Not one jot nor tittle. Let's take the cup together. Father, we rejoice. We rejoice that there is forgiveness in Christ. We rejoice that there is hope for the lost and for the sinner. We rejoice that we get to be part of your kingdom. That you opened our eyes and you drew us to you. That you would lead our hearts to repentance. That we might become your children. May we rise up. May we live lives of devotion and worship. May we keep your law. May we obey your word with the strictest concern. And may we go out and share the light and the truth that you have given to us. And may we make disciples of all nations. And may we bring glory to your holy name. And all the saints said, Amen. Amen.